Well, it's Monday morning, it's the final day of Impact 2022, and he or she who perseveres to the end shall be sanctified. You know, all weekend from beginning to now, and even certainly in our final session, the various musicians and vocalists have really blessed us, and they've just done a wonderful job. And uh, I know Andre made mention of this on Saturday, but they have really worked, toiled so hard, and we know that their labor is not in vain, and uh, so, so thank you so much, and if we could, I'd love to give them another hand. Thank you so much. Well, in our first session on Saturday, as we considered sanctification, I took you to John's Gospel. You'll remember that I took you to chapter 20, verse 31. You don't have to turn there. I see you grabbing your Bibles. Just you're eager, and that's good. John expressly gives us the purpose of his gospel there. He tells us that the gospel was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then that in believing, having been justified, we would then keep on believing and have life in his name. That is, that we would experience the fullness of all that is ours in Christ as we live our life. I then took you to the 16th verse of John chapter 1. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1 is what is called the prologue. And in those first 18 verses, it unfolds for us everything else that's going to occur all through that blessed and most beautiful gospel, the gospel of John. And I took you to those, that verse 16 where it says that from his fullness, from Christ's fullness, meaning that from his fullness in being the eternal son, but also the one who, verse 14 says, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. And so in his incarnation, in his living, in his dying, what did he do in his living and his dying? Well, he learned obedience as a son. You remember in that first session, I explained how Christ is our beautiful lead climber, that he went out ahead of us and he became obedience. Even as a son, Hebrew says, he learned obedience. And then we see some beautiful passages in the New Testament that tell us that the one who is sanctified, that is, we remember, Christ is the first fully sanctified person. He went out ahead of us. He ascended into glory as the God-man. And we receive from that fullness his obedience that he earned and who he is and every glory that is contained within him. We receive from that fullness grace and grace that beautiful duplex gratia those double graces where we receive grace in pardon in justification and we receive grace in power in sanctification and that means that we have Christ for us and we have Christ in us and that kind of all flows from that foundation of our union with Christ you remember that we are United to the one who went out to the father ahead of us. And then he draws us. You remember Sinclair said we are roped to him as our lead climber. He then pulls us to the father working in us the same obedience that he had as he lived his life. That's why the Christian life is a great life. It's a wonderful life. It's a life filled with sorrow and trial and heartache, both at what we experience in the world and we experience as a result of our own sin. 
and also the sorrow we have over our own sin. But it's a great life. Christ is our sufficient joy. And in our session today, I want us to consider our communion with Christ. On Saturday morning, we considered our union with Christ. This morning, our communion with Christ as an essential component to our sanctification. We're talking about sanctification, you remember? We look back and rejoice in our justification. We eagerly await and long for Andre's final message about our glorification. And in between justification and glorification, those grand pillars is that lived out daily battle of our sanctification. We feel progress. We feel two steps back. We feel the weight of our sanctification. We long for greater and greater holiness. If you are truly justified, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you will be sanctified. It's been quite the journey studying all of this in the lead up. I'm indebted to the works of Herman Bavink and Sinclair Ferguson and Walter Marshall and John Owen and three of those men are from the 1600s. I've been able to draw from and be blessed by those men for these two sessions. Sinclair, who Andre and I have been quoting, he's still alive today, but he's certainly not from this world. I want to add a couple of footnotes concerning our first session. By way of reminder and also some necessary thoughts to add as we lead into and then dive into the dynamics of our sanctification and the direction of our sanctification this morning. If you're taking notes, that's the two headings, the dynamics of our sanctification and the direction of our sanctification. First, let me reread the definition of sanctification given by the Westminster Shorter Catechism for you. It says this, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, the added footnote that I want to add concerning our union with Christ is important to note. When it comes to our union with Christ and how there is an affecting of that union that flows into our sanctification in real time, day to day, moment by moment. I made mention on Saturday of the two aspects of union with Christ. That there is this double manner, if you will, in which we are united to Christ. One being our federal or covenant union, that is before time, when the triune Godhead covenanted, planned our redemption. The Father gave a people to the Son to ransom and redeem. And in sanctification to do a work of restoration in them. That's one aspect. The second manner, when we think of union with Christ, is what we call our faith union. Our faith union, meaning that by faith we let then lay hold of what was planned and prepared for us before time. We do that, don't we, at the point of our conversion, which is by faith. And it's this second manner of our union with Christ that we can call and must call a living and vital union. A living and vital 
union. You see, the Apostle Paul illustrates this by using body parts connected to the head, doesn't he? In Colossians 2.19, when we think of the body and the head, blood flows from the brain, from the head, down through to the toes and the fingers. The connection to the head ensures that vital life remains in the body parts. Jesus himself illustrated this vital and living union in John 15. Very familiar passage when he spoke of himself as the vine, the true vine, and then we as the branches. That is a vital union. You see, the same sap flows from vine to branch. No vine, no branch. The same blood flows from the head to the rest of the body. No head. No blood in the body. All is vital for life. And so this second aspect, this second manner of our union with Christ is not simply mechanical, as theologians like to put it. It's not simply mechanical in reference to our federal or covenant union where it was a statement of fact before eternity, in eternity past about us. This second manner of our Union with Christ that we lay hold of by faith at conversion is vital and it is actual. It is the very life and blessing of Christ, who is our head, providing for us in our spiritual bloodstream, if you will. We have life in his name. We have his life in our veins. And what that union means is that everything that Christ has is what we have. All the blessings and saving benefits that he purchased for us now come from him to us like sap in the vine comes to the branch and blood in the head comes to the hands and feet. And so it's so vital. It's so amazing. It's so mysterious and it's so very true. And I say all of that because once we grasp our union in this way as the foundation for sanctification. And we don't run too quickly to the practical. Once we grasp this foundation of our union, we begin to see and then we must then consider that from out of the wellspring of our living and vital union. Comes our communion with Christ. We commune with the one in whom we are in union with, you see, our union is fixed. Our union is fixed. It was fixed to us in eternity past before time began. In the work of regeneration where we then lay hold of it by faith. It's a union that is unbreakable. It's not going anywhere. It's fastened for good. Our communion with Christ is not fixed. Our communion does and can and will fluctuate. It'll ebb and flow. Perhaps a good way to illustrate this is the marriage relationship. Actually, it's a pretty good way to illustrate it, actually. A man and a woman made a covenant before God. They're placed into a one flesh union. A bond for life. Fixed. And yet the husband and wife better commune with each other. 
For if they do not, it's not going to be good. It's not going to glorify God. That communion needs interaction and appropriation, apprehension. As a husband and wife engage with each other. But all that ebb and flows. It's not something we are simply passive in. It requires activity. Listen to how the prince of theologians, the Puritan John Owen, defined communion with Christ. He said, quote, our communion with God consists in God's communication of himself unto us. With our return unto him of that which he requires and accepts flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. God communicates to us through his word, both when privately read and particularly when preached in the corporate gathering as the spirit of God attends the preaching of the word in a very unique and special way. God communicates to us also through providence. Through the means of grace of baptism and the Lord's table and in all of those we then after having received of Christ and his benefits. We then return to God all that he requires of us and what he requires of us. He accepts from us because it comes from the place of being in union with Christ. And so we have in the scope of sanctification, both union and communion, communion as the flow out from our union. And that's where I want us to draw our attention for the remainder of our time together. And so with that, would you turn with me? To Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It is here we see now, number one, heading number one, the dynamics of sanctification. The Philippians is often remarked about being the letter about joy. And that's correct, but. More specifically, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The one who is our sufficient joy. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 2. So then. The reason he says so then is because, as we know, he has just from verse 1 through to verse 11, just spoken of the glories of the incarnation of Christ. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and he just spoke about how Jesus became obedient to the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The result of working out your salvation with God working in you. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, sanctified. In the midst of a crooked and perverse, very unsanctified generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Martin Lloyd-Jones called what we have just read, quote, one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere, end quote. What we see immediately from this passage is the command in fact, it's the main verb in the whole passage, the command to work out. Work out our salvation. This is not referring to figuring out if you're saved or not. It's in reference to making the outworking of the salvation that you possess which is the sanctification that you are a part of in Christ, a living, breathing reality in your daily life. Work out your salvation means that since you have had salvation worked in you by the grace of God in Christ, now because that grace is still operative in you by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, put yourself in the way of His grace, by laboring to avail yourself of the means by which you are practically and progressively transformed. That's what it means. Work out. That's the commanding verb here, the main verb, as I said. Work out. And so after seeing the command there, and the depths of that command, look now at the grounds for such a command. The basis for such a command. In verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. For it is God who is at work in you. And so here is the blessed necessity of balance in sanctification. You see throughout the history of the church. Recent decades and certainly most present day. There have been controversies surrounding sanctification. They gave me the controversial theme again. God in His kindness, by His Word and Spirit down through time, has shone the light on two heresies, two erroneous extremes that have and do exist in the church concerning such an essential matter as sanctification. On one side, you have what is called quietism. Quietism. Quietists believe that the believer is altogether passive in sanctification. And that sanctification comes about exclusively through resting in God. And an altogether inactive approach. The idea is there's nothing you can do to progress your sanctification. God does the work in you. And so just reflect upon that. Rest upon that and wait upon that. Andrew Murray, the renowned Dutch theologian, was one of the most well-known advocates of such a position. He wrote, quote, What the believer can do in and of himself is only altogether sinful. 
What he's saying there is you can't make any striving. He must therefore cease entirely from his own doing and wait for the working of God in him. Just as in proportion as he yields himself, as a, listen to this, as a truly passive instrument in the hand of God, will he be wielded of God as the active instrument of God's mighty power. To our flesh, there is something incredibly appealing to leaving sanctification like we leave our justification. It really is appealing. But as we see, there's a, there's a precious biblical truth revealed to us when we consider sanctification that will help us. Quietism on one side. Then on the other side, you have what is called moralism. Or legalism. Moralism or legalism refers to the idea that we can actively increase our sanctification by engaging energetically with external acts. External Christian acts as well. Both of those positions are extremes of one another. They're both out on the edge. And generations will swing the pendulum between the two. Theologically, they're called antinomian and neonomian. No law, anti, no, nomos, law, no law, antinomian. And then new law, neo, new, nomos, law, new law, neonomian, new law. And that really strikes the heart of the issue. Antinomianism and neonomianism. Quietism, legalism. You see, in our sanctification, are there urgings and laws given to us by God in His Word as regenerate believers that call us to grow in holiness? There are clear answer is yes. The New Testament is replete with commands to us as believers. But you say we are under grace and not under the law. Well, we'll get to that later on. But the clear answer is yes, there are commands to the regenerate to grow in holiness. And so we must not embrace or imbibe an antinomian, no law position. That tells us simply to let go and let God as though the law was not good for us. We'll talk about our relationship to the law in a moment. Second, another question. Are we to go beyond what scripture clearly expresses for our sanctification and add to it legalistic, moralistic commands? No. For while the law and our relationship as new covenant regenerate believers as our relationship to the law is good, new laws from moralistic legalism are not good either. And so what are we to do? Well, that is what makes this passage in Philippians 2 so lovely and so utterly necessary for us in our sanctification. Because in verse 12, we have the command, the law. And in verse 13, we have the grounds for such a command, the gospel. 
Namely, that God has worked in us and is working in us. We have Christ in us for power. And so right here we see something very important for our Christian life of sanctification. Because the command, which we call an imperative, right? Commands for the regenerate new covenant believer are always anchored in the truth of who we are in Christ, in the gospel, the indicatives. The commands are always anchored in the indicatives. Meaning, because you are in possession of God's Spirit, as a new creation in regeneration, a saint that is in Christ, and all that that means, with the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of holiness working in you, here then is the command that Christ will work in you by His enabling Spirit works for you to accomplish. Strivings of effort of Sanctification for you to accomplish. Legalistic moralism just adds more and more imperatives with no attention to the indicatives. And the result is self-effort and moralism. Antinomianism, the quietism, just adds more and more of the indicatives to the exclusion of the imperatives. And you just have lawlessness. Both of them come from the same place. Antinomianism and neonomianism both come from the same place. And that is a wrong understanding of who God is and the gospel. They are fruit of from the same place. Legalistic moralism that accomplishes nothing but burnout and bitterness and results in a lack of joy-filled assurance. is just as bad as licentious lawlessness. But here... In verses 12 and 13, you see the wisdom of God to us and the kind expression of the love of God to us. And we must come under that revealed wisdom and appropriate and embrace, listen to this, the equal emphasis that the Apostle Paul makes here. You see, speaking in broad strokes, and you have to really emphasize that. Speaking in broad generalizations, I think we are in a generation, at least with some, in this present reformed and evangelical generation, that is responding to a time gone by of a more legalistic moralism of new laws and self-effort sanctification, that it has recovered much of the reality of verse 13, that it is God who is at work in you in the ultimate sense. Yet it too is in the danger of swinging too far and missing the aspect of sanctification that calls us, like verse 12 does, to be in pursuit with a diligent grace-wrought effort to grow in godliness. Speaking to this generation a few years ago now, Kevin DeYoung offered these important words, quote, he said, we are on dangerous ground if we imply that we are passive in sanctification in the same way we are passive in regeneration. Now, if you go and read the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he will make some strong and beautiful statements about how God works in us 
in a very passive way. But if you keep reading Bavink, he will then arrive at the same place and tell us that God also calls us to be active. Regeneration does come to us solely by the grace of God. Sanctification does solely come to us by the grace of God. And yet we outwork our sanctification by the very grace that God gives us. And you remember that I said grace is not a thing. Because God the Father gives us Christ to receive through the means of grace. We don't receive a thing. We receive Christ himself. This is what is unhelpful. This is why, rather, it is unhelpful to speak of sanctification as either synergistic or monogistic. Someone asked that question yesterday. Phil didn't get to it. Andre and I and Nick are blaming Phil for us taking too long to answer questions. Did you pick up on that? It's a good question. It's unhelpful to speak of sanctification as either synergistic or monogistic. And I trust we know what we're saying when we say that. But let me, for those of you that don't, mono is one, er is like energy to go, to move, one, salvation is monogistic, God, and then synergistic, sin, two, two are working. We shouldn't use either term to speak of sanctification. We can use those terms for regeneration, but we don't use those terms for sanctification. I grew up. Hearing that salvation is monogistic and sanctification is synergistic. I would humbly submit that the pastors and the podcasts and the people saying sanctification is one or the other. And I hear that still to this day, that sanctification is synergistic. And no, 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 sanctification is monogistic. In fact, out there, both are loud voices. I would say the pendulum swing now is to say that sanctification is monogistic. I would say that pastors and podcasts and people saying that sanctification is one or the other have fallen off one side of the horse like the drunken man that Martin Luther spoke of. You remember that illustration by Martin Luther? The drunk man gets up on the horse from one side and then he falls off the other. Then he gets up and he gets up on the horse on the other side and he just falls off the other. Instead, they're sobering words, pun intended. Gracious and measured words from the wisdom and love of God here in our passage that informs us and aids us to sit in the saddle. Listen to Lewis Burkhoff helpfully summarize this. Quote, when it is said that man takes part in the work of sanctification... This does not mean that man is an independent agent in the work so as to make it partly the work of God and partly the work of man. But merely that God effects the work in part through the instrumentality of man as a rational being by requiring of him prayerful and intelligent cooperation with the spirit. Let's dig a little into this passage now. Remember the command to work out your sanctification in verse 12. 
means to put yourself in the way of the grace of God revealed in the person of Christ, grace, by the Spirit, by laboring to avail yourself of the means by which you are practically and progressively transformed. That right there is communion. That is communion. You are in vital union to the lead climber, Jesus Christ, who has climbed the holy hill. He's ascended into heaven's glory. And you are in vital union like sap in vine is to the branch. And you are, draw, and you are to then draw down from heaven's storehouse, from that rich vine, the true vine, by availing yourself of the means by which God has established. And that is not to be an altogether ultimate passive endeavor and not altogether an active pursuit, but a wonderful harmony of pursuing a God-given holiness. It's God-given because God is working in and through us. We are to pursue it. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification. Verse 1 of Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We run because we have Christ for power, Jesus working in us. Not passivity and not blind rigors of activity. But a pursual of holiness that is grounded in and energized by the grace of God. Through the spirit of God that is at work in us. It's a great life. It's a mysterious life. It's a beautiful life. It's what it means to have life in his name. The Greek word there for work in verse 12, work, or the phrase work out, is a word that conveys the very idea of affecting by labor. Affecting by labor. Laying hold of something by work. It, it comes from the verb energio, and you don't have to have me explain to you what English word we get that from, energio. And so what is fundamental to a healthy sanctification is grasping that sanctification is not me working in synergism with God. As sanctification has commonly been explained among, among conservative evangelicals as being synergistic. No, sanctification is laboring in the pursuit of godliness and holiness in our day-to-day -day lives, with the energy to do that coming not at all from ourselves, but from the power we have from God in the person of Jesus Christ, whom we have in us and to whom we are united to. I just want to stop and say this. You get assigned to preach on sanctification and then you're impatient with your kid. You get assigned to preach on sanctification and you see your sin. 
The Lord knows. Well, this will go down in history. Hey, let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, we acknowledge that you are good and holy and kind. And Father, we thank you for the fellowship we just had. <laughs> uh, Father, we come now to fellowship around your word and ask that you might aid us, guide us, bless us, settle us. Uh, we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our last session on Saturday, we considered, and today I want us to consider, <laughs> was the evacuation synergistic or monogistic? <laughs> Satan doesn't want us to be sanctified. But the grand irony is that being together out there on the tennis court is a means of sanctification. And really, if you want to be sanctified, you just do this. You just sit under the preaching of the word of God. You fellowship with the saints. You sing praises to God. You pray. You practice the one another's. You do all those things that we're doing here. And so uh, I'll try and get my bearings again. I'm just going to preach us into glory. And so Andre doesn't have to do his final message. <laughs> I was talking about how we run because Jesus works in us. Our sanctification is not passivity, nor is it blind rigors of activity. It's a pursuit of holiness that's grounded in and energized in the grace of God through the spirit of God that's working in us. I spoke about that word energy, energio. <clears throat> Sanctification's commonly been explained as being synergistic. But the reality is that sanctification is laboring in the pursuit of godliness and holiness in our day-to-day -day lives with the energy to do that coming from God. John Calvin said of this that that is the true engine, he called it. He called it the true engine for fighting against the sin that so easily entangles us from day to day. And that's the importance of sanctification between the pillar of justification and glorification is that battle. One commentator put it so well when he paraphrased what Paul is saying here in our passage in Philippians 2. <clears throat> he said, quote, it is incumbent upon you to work out your sanctification, that is your salvation, with fear and trembling. But do not forget for a moment that in all your efforts of working out, it is God who is working in you, energizing all of your efforts. I like that. It's a great way to put it. That is why sanctification from pillar to post is not synergistic. It is from God in the full and ultimate sense, really. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, we read there that sanctification is ascribed wholesale to God with the words, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. But in that, what is meant is that he is energizing you to grow in grace. And so 
Because it is God who works sanctification in us from the foundation of our union with Christ. And the fountain that flows out of that union, that is Christ Himself who is in us for power. And because the grace at our justification, that is Christ for us, for pardon, because that grace is still operative in us by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we then commune with our God in the person of Christ by diligently laboring to avail ourselves of the means by which we are, as I've said, practically and progressively transformed. In other words, we commune with Christ for our sanctification by fellowshipping with our God and making use of those means afforded to us. Means, as I've already said, like prayer and preaching and the Lord's table and baptism. The Lord's table is more than a memory. More than just a symbol. The Lord's table is where we fellowship and partake and have Christ commune with us in a very unique and special way. When we observe or partake in a baptism, we, we, we receive of Christ and His benefits in a mysterious way. Likewise, when we Sit under the preaching of the word of God. Because as I've said a couple of times, grace is not a thing. It's the very receiving of Christ as Christ and his benefits. You know, through the means of grace that God has ordained, it is through those means that we receive spiritual stamina and spiritual stability to be further sanctified. And to grow in the graces of the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control, and so forth. That's the dynamics of our sanctification. Those dynamics are ours because of the foundation of our sanctification, our union. And we lay hold of them because they come to us from the flow of our sanctification, that is Christ Himself. And here now is finally heading number two, the direction of our sanctification. The direction of our sanctification. In what direction must our communion occur and to whom are we to commune with and how do we commune? To unearth some of the riches of this, we need to hear the words again of that prince of Puritans, John Owen, who said, quote, by communion with the person of Christ, I do not exclude the other persons from communion with the soul either. End quote. You see, just as each person of the Trinity had a role in our redemption, so too each person plays a role in our sanctification through communion. When we think of the Father, we come to him, don't we, as the one who showered us with electing love. The overall theme of the father in the scripture is he is assigned the one who elected. <clears throat> the apostle John in his gospel and his first epistle wrote things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so God the Father, from his love, sent his Son into the world to serve as the only Savior the world has to save his people from their sins. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle John wrote, God is love. Same deal. God the Father is in mind there. He's the one who gives us electing love. And so we receive that electing love from the Father, and in communion with that love, we respond to that love, and we do that chiefly by receiving that love, and particularly thanking the Father for His love, which was made evident in the sending of His Son. That's how we commune with the Father. And in line with what we read earlier and heard from John Owen, where we receive from God and then we return, we necessarily return to God, we do that by acknowledging our need for the Father's love and obeying the Son whom He sent. I think. The chief and primary way we acknowledge our love for God is by acknowledging our need for Him. And it's the Father who showered us with electing love. And so we return to Him what He gave to us. And so the first direction of our sanctification in our communion for sanctification is toward the Father. The second is toward the Son. Toward the Son. We commune with the Son first by finding satisfaction in Him. That's how we commune with the Son. The Father sent the Son that we might find in the Son lasting satisfaction as the bread of life in whom there is no hunger. As the fountain of living water in whom there is no thirst. Our souls find their rest and our desires find their lasting delight in the person of Christ. Regeneration is the birth. Sanctification is the growth. And we grow as we commune with the bread of life. Another way we commune with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is beholding His glory. Beholding his glory. Jesus said in John chapter 11 verse 40. Did I not say to you that when you believe. You will see the glory of God. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. That we all walked by on our way back into the building. In the foyer there says. That God who said let there be light. Paul is hearkening back to Genesis. 1. God who said let there be light. Or Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person, the face of Jesus Christ. As a result of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, applying to us the benefits of Christ's life and death and most certainly his glorious ascension. We now see full in the face of Christ the Son 
And as we do, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, we then grow from grace to grace by the Spirit. As we study the person of Christ in the pages of Scripture, our lives are more and more drawn to have affections for Him. Joy in Him. Sufficiency in Him. Satisfaction in Him. For in Him is the very glory and grace of God. If there is a lack of joy in your life, if there is challenges in your life, you can all but be certain that you are seeking satisfaction in something that was never designed to give you lasting satisfaction. The sun came and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. We now see his glory in the pages of scripture for that is where his glory is beheld. And so the direction of our sanctification is we commune with the father. We commune with the son. The final direction is of course communion with the Holy Spirit. No one says it better than John Owen. He says it. In thousands of words with no full stops and just comma after comma. And so let me give it to you in a succinct nutshell. We commune with the spirit in our conversion. First, we're made believers. We commune with him. As our consolation. So what does that mean? Well, that means. That it is the Spirit who gives us all the privileges of the death of Christ and what He purchased for us. is our consolation. And what that all means, to commune with the Spirit in conversion and to commune with the Spirit in consolation, what that all means practically is that in the battle against sin, in the battle in our own hearts, in the battle with our own unredeemed flesh, and in the battle with the world around us, our comfort and our consolation does not lay in ourselves or some external act, but instead it lay in the comfort and security of the Holy Spirit of God who works in us and for us and of which whose work will not and cannot fail. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work will finish it. Owen said, when the sense of sin fills our heart and troubles us, it is the Spirit who gives us peace. But for that to happen, for there to be a laying hold of Christ as your sufficient joy in sanctification in this life, we must get in the way of the Spirit, as it were. And we get in the way of the Spirit by acknowledging our great need for the God who sent His Son and indwells us by His Spirit. Why would we ever lay hold of that which we don't have or sense a need for? Ask God to give you greater desire for Him. Acknowledge areas in your life that you are treasuring that are not Christ. And get in the way of the Spirit. And how we do that is by being filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 
Someone said it, Simon or Andre or someone, maybe Nick, that the Spirit is not a commodity. The Spirit is a person. We can't get any more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can get more of us. One of the key things about this journey of sanctification is our relationship to the law. In, in my world that I grew up in, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. There's Bible verses that say that. Romans chapter 6, beautiful passage on union with Christ and dying to sin, Romans 6. But there are other passages that tell us that the law is very good. And so I just need to break down the law for you. The law that comes from God has what we call a first use. A first use. It's a standard that you simply cannot obey. God requires perpetual ongoing obedience to the law and you can't do that. Therefore, that law in its first use drives you to Jesus Christ. And having been driven to Christ by grace in the work of regeneration, laying hold of it by faith, we then are placed in a new relationship to the law. And that's the third use of the law. This is very crucial to sanctification. You see, the third use of the law is for the regenerate. The first use is for the unregenerate. The third use of the law is for the regenerate, meaning that the third use of the law is the moral law, not the ceremonial and the civil, but the moral law. The third use of the law is a rule of life for the regenerate by which you must it is a standard of conduct. And if you do away with the third use of the law, you're what? Antinomian. You become a quietist. But if you add to the law, new law, you become what? Neonomian. Legalist. Listen to John Murray, who wrote the book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He said this, it is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We must not forget, of course, that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification. But we must not rely upon our own strength of resolution or purpose. It is when we are weak that we are strong. It is by grace we have been saved. As surely as by grace we have been. Sorry. It is by grace that we are being saved. 
as surely as by grace we have been saved. If we are not keenly sensitive to our own helplessness, neediness, I need you God, I I show my love by acknowledging my great need for you. Then we can make the means of sanctification, which we've made a great deal of, listen to this, the minister of self-righteousness and pride and thus defeat the end of sanctification. Listen to this. We must rely not upon the means of sanctification. Say what? But upon the God of all grace. See, if we're not careful, what we do is we say, yep, God works in me, and then I lay hold of the means, and then I rely upon the means. And, and, and so everything about me then leans on the means, if you will. But we must not rely upon the means of sanctification, but upon the God of all grace. Self-confident moralism promotes pride, and sanctification promotes humility and contrition. It is God who is at work in you. Both to will. He works His will in you. And to work. He works His purpose in you for His good pleasure. Between justification and glorification. Sanctification. And with us, every step of the way is the fountain of living water. The person and work of Jesus Christ himself the flesh in its unredeemed state with all its lusts we must make no provision for the flesh according to its lusts by laying hold of the rope that our lead climber has who went out ahead of us To the Father. By becoming obedient. As a son. And then we must climb after him. As he pulls us toward him. And works in us. The very same obedience. That he himself was presented before the Father with. As the fully first sanctified God man. In whom we worship. And in whom we are in precious union with. I trust that this is a little different. Then just go do more better. But this is the fuel. For a sanctified life. May all praise and glory. Be to God. Father we come before you. And we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for the opportunity it is to. To have your word and be indwelt by your spirit. We thank you for Christ for us. We thank you for Christ in us. We thank you for Christ for pardon. We thank you for Christ for power. But help us not to rely on any means. But upon the God of all grace. And so we praise you for your grace. And all God's people said.